all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your Southern Remedy program, the one that you can call in about any kind. Actually, you can call in with any of our programs. I don't want to single out this one. But today we like to uh, sort of leave things wide open for any type of subject that uh, is bothering you, whether that's a question about a symptom that you're having or a diagnosis or something that you just want to know about, maybe a medication side effect or just how things work in the body. We would love to hear from you this morning, and I'm giving you permission, that person who's thinking about calling right now, to be the first caller. We do understand that you might not be able to call during the live uh, broadcasting hour time, but we do uh, encourage you to email us. We do try to respond to those emails, and if you uh, give us some permission, we can... uh, uh, share that on air uh, with the rest of our listeners. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Lots of water in the uh, pretty much across the whole state, it looks like. But uh, I know here in central Mississippi, we had a flash flood uh, conditions that are going on right now. And certainly that has a lot of cause to, uh, you know, people think about the medical problems that you could have, but that we don't think about the things that really impact people in a very unpredictable way. And uh, this is one of them. So I personally witnessed driving in today one car that had uh, stalled out at a lower lying uh, sort of intersection underneath. It was actually underneath a bridge. Uh, from the railroad track in downtown Jackson, and uh, water was up to the windows. So I hope that person got out okay. But please be careful. Please keep in mind, as all of our emergency uh, <clears throat> personnel tell us, that if you uh, you know if you can't always see how deep things are, and you don't know what's underneath there too, you could have a road that's washed out. Um, certainly in Mississippi, we have a lot of problems with that, and you just can't see it if you've got water. Uh, that's often murky, uh, that's flowing over that. So please be careful going to and from work today. If you're in a low-lying area, please make preparations. Don't wait till that water gets up uh, to where you are. Make sure you know how to get in and out safely uh, and just prepare for that. So just uh, a word of caution for everybody. Go to John from Collins. Good morning, John. Yes, thanks for taking my call, doctor. Sure. This is a question. There's a lot of people listen to this uh, discussion. Uh, uh, this is what we need to know about. Hemorrhoid banding. Yeah. Where's the, where's the band placed? Is the band placed 
other than on around the hemorrhoid? And what is the hazard or bad result you can get from having your hemorrhoids banded? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh so it's it's pretty much um how it sounds. It's a pretty simple procedure and you know, hemorrhoids, let's back up a little bit. So hemorrhoids are blood vessels. So our colon and our rectum and anus have lots of blood flow to the area. And um occasionally you can get a situation where you have those blood vessels to become enlarged and they're usually venous they're not arterial so they're uh, the veins that take blood back to our heart but they can get enlarged because it's sort of a normally a low pressure system if you have chronic constipation or you bear down hard when you have a bowel movement over time you can increase the pressure in that area such that those veins enlarge uh, and get get a lot bigger and uh, if they get big enough, they sort of protrude out into the, what we call the lumen. That's the inside of the opening of the lower part of the intestine and where it goes out of the body. Uh, they can protrude outside of it or they can protrude up a little bit closer. So we have internal hemorrhoids that are more sort of tucked in a little bit further up. And then we have external hemorrhoids that actually are uh, sort of you can see those. Um so different ways to treat these, most of the time, either our general surgeons or uh, gastroenterologists uh, can do certain procedures to try to get rid of those or treat them. The risk of having hemorrhoids is you, you a lot of people, it's just an irritant and, the, and pain from them um, over time. And then the other thing is they can bleed. So a lot of times my patients will say, hey, when I wipe, it bleeds. I've got blood on there and may have seen something visually. So there's different ways to get rid of those. Um, one of those is banding, and it's like a little rubber band. That's what it looks like. And basically under direct visualization, so they're looking at the hemorrhoid, whether that's an external hemorrhoid or internal, they'll slip this rubber band on it with an instrument uh, and it constricts blood flow to that. And then that hemorrhoid and the rubber band just sort of fall off. So if you, uh, if you envision this is almost this little, uh, this, like, a, like if you envision a hemorrhoid as your finger uh, and you ask, like, where does that band go? It would go all the way up to the point where your finger attaches to your hand. So at the base of the hemorrhoid. And that just, um, you know, loses blood supply and then falls off. Usually it's pretty painless uh, when they do this. They can do multiple ones. And, again, that band, that band just falls off and you flush it down the, the toilet like you normally would. As far as risk factors, there's not a whole lot of them for this. And it's one of the more common things that they do. They can do injections into that with different materials that constrict the blood flow and, and then it falls off. They can do excisions of it and then they have to put in sort of sutures. Uh, but a band, uh, although it may sound like, you know, well, is, when is that going to come off? And, you know, I, I can't remember the exact time period. They usually quote this, but I think it's within a week that it, it would fall off from decreased blood flow. It may be a little bit longer than that in some instances, depending on the size of it. Um, All right. I, one more quick addition yeah. to that. Yep. All right. Uh, when they ban that, do they actually have to see where they're placing the band? And what is a hazard for cutting off uh, return blood circulation to your system. Can you make your colon die from cutting off too many hemorrhoids? 
No, you you can't. Uh, let me back up though. So yeah, they do it under direct visualization, meaning they are looking at it either through a scope or they're looking directly at it with their eyes. Because you wouldn't want to do this blind. You wouldn't want to just sort of feel around and do that. And so that's that's why these specialists have to do it. And the second question you had, does it cut off blood supply to the colon or impede blood flow back to your heart? No. It only it only is going to, like, cut off blood supply to that hemorrhoid. So you could have 20 hemorrhoids that they banned, and it's not going to do anything to the colon. The colon's still going to get its blood supply uh, just fine. It's just that this is sort of a ballooning out of that in a place where it's not supposed to be. So very safe procedure. Minimal side effects. Uh, you go. It's not something that you even have to be, you know, under anesthesia for most of the time. They can just do uh, it what, right in the what, office. What, somebody asked this question. Added to this. I'm sorry about. No, go ahead. Questions. All right. Is there ever a case where they do what they call blind banding, where they don't see what they're doing? They just reach up into your rectum and put a band somewhere. Is that is that ever is that crazy? Not, not that I'm aware of. Uh, there may be a procedure that somehow does that, but most of the time these are done, as like I said, directly visualized. You wouldn't want to go and ban something that you weren't supposed to be. You know, there you banned. go. I, you really answered the question to everybody in the audience over here. Okay. And appreciate it, and you got the best program in town. Oh, thank you, John. We do appreciate you listening and calling in. All right. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Yes, sir. We're going to go to Marie in Biloxi. Good morning, Marie. Hi. What's your question this morning? Okay. Um, postmenopausal. Okay. And four years, four years ago, had an ovarian cyst that was approximately 1.3 centimeters. And as of now, it's 3.5 centimeters. Should okay. I be concerned? And then what is the next step? I already had an ultrasound. Gotcha. Ultrasound. Yeah. Yeah. So ovarian cyst, uh, and you gave me all the correct information. Kudos to you about that, just just to try to answer it. But um, so ovarian cysts are common if you're premenopausal, that meaning that you're going to release probably an egg from your ovary into the fallopian tube once a month. You're going to have a cyst develop at least on one ovary um, one time a month. So those are normal, and even you know around the time of menopause, that can continue to happen. But then you have, because they're, I mean, if you think about it, the ovaries designed to make cysts that have an egg in it that releases that cyst. And a lot of people have symptoms that are related to that. Like when the cyst is getting bigger, uh, it, it, even though it's, it's a normal phenomenon, it will cause some pressure or pain that they have intermittently. After menopause, most of those are benign, and most of those are small and what we call uh, they're not loculated. In other words, they don't have – it's one big cavity or maybe has like one di- uh, division of it. But uh, the ones that we worry about more are the larger ones and the ones that have more loculations or more divisions in it. Those tend to be things that the OBGYNs worry a little bit more towards doing surgery for. And, um, you know, the size wise, you know, you, I think you quoted 1.5, 1.6 centimeters to begin with. So that's about one and a half times the width of your uh, 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 fifth finger fingernail. 
um, for most people. And uh, now it's up to like three and a half centimeters. So usually anything less than four centimeters is not that much to worry about, although they may want some frequent follow-up with the ultrasound. And ultrasound's really good, a vaginal ultrasound, to follow it up because it's you're right there by the ovary. You can see it really well. And then um, they may, you know, they they probably did some blood work, too, looking for tumor markers um, of other things. They'll Occasionally they'll do that, particularly as the, the cysts get okay. bigger. Just because it's getting bigger doesn't mean that it's malignant, um, particularly if that's slowly over time. But they're going to have in mind, you know, sort of a cutoff. Uh, and other criteria to say, hey, I think we need to go in and surgically remove this. Right. And usually that means okay. taking out the whole ovary. Uh, that's that's just an easier okay. thing to do. Yeah. So I have a family history. My mother died of ovarian cancer. And then yeah. so that my should, brother has metastatic prostate, and then I've had melanoma. So all those factors, I think, are somewhat related. I'm not sure. Yeah. The more risk you have in a situation like that, whether it be family history or personal history, they're probably going to, you know, they're probably going to recommend surgery earlier than somebody that didn't have that. Uh, and again, right. that, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is malignant. It just means that as right. your risk increases, then you, you know, have to balance that out with the risk of surgery. And that's normally how they approach that. And yep. just kind of yep. evaluate yep. the big picture. Okay, gotcha. Okay, well, thank you so much. And I like your program. Oh, thank you, Marie. We do appreciate you listening and calling. To Terry from Columbus, Mississippi. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. <clears throat> I uh, I have a condition they call pyrimic nerve paralysis on the left lung side. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> our doctor in Dallas that I saw has. Uh, told me now my stomach has migrated to the cavity that's been created by the uh, lack of ability of that left lung to stay in its place and that it is elevated up to my shoulder. Um, I, I live in Columbus. I wound up in the hospital in West Point last week because of a severe infection. And what the doctor there told me is that since I can't cough it up, it just collected over time and filled up with mucus. Mm-hmm. And that's, he said, he called it pneumonia, but he said it was probably just drainage that eventually filled up and became infected. And he said, <coughs> he told me that I need to not get pneumonia or bronchitis. And I said, if I could figure that out, I think we both could be millionaires. <laughs> But I don't know what to do. I mean, I still have drainage. I just finished this round of antibiotics. I do feel better. But when the fever hit me, and the, it just it, it paralyzed me almost. I couldn't do anything. It hit so quickly. Yeah. How, how long have you had the, the diagnosis of the phrenic nerve uh, paralysis? Just a year and three months. I was visiting family in Dallas. Um, when I first got sick, and it was the same thing. I wound up in the hospital with high fever and pneumonia in the same area, and then they sent me to UT Southwest mm-hmm. to Dr. Lucier, a specialist, a lung specialist, who 
has said there's only really two options, and she said putting in a pacemaker on that nerve mm-hmm. is one, and the other, she said, was um, pulling the stomach back, staple it in place, pulling the lung down and stapling it in place to keep my stomach from moving and mm-hmm. and to maybe free up that lung where I could cough better. So, yeah. But there's no guarantee either way, she said. Right. Yeah, Terry, this is, uh, let me back up a little bit. You are very versed on this, obviously, and, and know all the, the what's going on. Uh, we probably got some other listeners saying, what are these words they're using? So let me let me explain this to everybody else, and then we'll, we'll try to answer yes, your question there. So the phrenic nerve, um, it is a nerve that controls your diaphragm. Uh, so the way that you breathe, both voluntary and involuntary, it can, it's the main nerve that innervates that sheet of muscle called the diaphragm and uh, allows us to breathe. And there's two different divisions to it. So there's a left and a right. And sometimes, and we don't always know why, but sometimes you can have damage to that nerve. This could be damage from, uh, say, uh, trauma to the chest or to the neck. Um, this nerve is a long nerve. It actually runs, uh, you know, down the neck all the way to, uh, in the posterior part of the, of the chest, all the way down to the diaphragm. Uh, sometimes it can be after you get a viral infection, uh, that you see a, a partial paralysis of one side. So if you can think about that, when you take a breath, you don't, you don't contract one side of the diaphragm. So it just sort of sits there. And then over time, because the lungs have this elastic recoil, and normally, um, you know, if you do anything to that cavity or the muscle, they're not going to stay inflated, okay? So they have this sort of this negative pressure that keeps them inflated. Um, And if you're not breathing correctly on either side, you can have what you just, uh, Terry, what you just described, which you can have an obstructive pneumonia, that basically everything's not inflated properly to the point that it should, and you can get secretions that build up, you can get bacterial overgrowth, and then you wind up with an infection. Now, the treatment for this, um, number one, is to try to figure out if there's a reason, like if, like in the a couple of scenarios that doesn't sound like what you were dealing with, but if it's like trauma-related, like the nerve is, is cut, you can uh, actually reattach it back together, and it's... Um, got some success with that. But in this case, since we don't really know what was going on, sometimes some people might treat with antivirals if you've got a suspicion that it might be a virus that you had or with steroids afterwards. Most patients get better within 6 to 12 months, which is a long time. That's the reason I ask how long you've had it. Since you've had it over a year, though, and with the complications that you're having, it's unlikely that this is going to get better on its own. The procedures that you just described, one of which is a uh, phrenic nerve stimulator, would be like a pacemaker, like we have pacemakers for the heart. This would be a pacemaker that stimulates that nerve or stimulates the diaphragm itself to contract. And if you think about it, you know, that, that sort of intermittent, I've known some patients have gotten this and they've had some complications from it. Some have done okay. It's not all that common. The other thing that you mentioned is uh, placation surgery, which is where they pull everything back to where it is. You know, the stomach's not pushing up into the diaphragm, into the uh, on the diaphragm, into the thoracic cavity. Uh, the lung is sort of uh, tacked down in place as as it you know in a position that's going to inflate it fully. 
And you're right. It's not 100% success, but usually if they're talking about that at this point, it's because you're getting, you know, serious enough complications like the chronic infections that it's causing a problem. So I, I think that's where you are. You sort of have to weigh that, like what your risks are according to, you know, are you a good surgical candidate for this? Because it is, this isn't sort of a, you know, an, an optional surgery. There, You need a good thoracic surgeon uh, to do this. Um, and they need to know what they're doing and tacking everything down. Um but uh, I think that's it sounds like you're at the point where that would be the next step is the surgery, whether that's the yeah. stimulator. And I don't know enough of the I haven't looked at this in a long time. I don't know enough about the the pacemaker versus the placation surgery where they tack everything down of which one's better. Uh, the funnel placation obviously has been around a long time. It's been a lot, a lot, a lot longer than the, the pacemaker. But that would be the question I would go back to your surgeon and say, what are my what's the success rate with both of these and what are the complications with both of these and then maybe make that decision on on one or the other yes sir thank you and one other question just i'm I'm trying to figure out what to do to try to keep drainage from happening so I can do as much as possible on my part and yeah I don't know what to do from the to stop the sinus drainage. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you've got a, and some of that's normal. It's not necessarily that it's too much sinus drainage. It's probably that your lung's just not opening up enough and clearing it. So this is more of yeah. a mechanical problem than it is anything else. However, if you've got a lot of drainage, um, I would do nasal wash followed by uh, a, um, a, a, corticosteroids, something like fluticasone or Flonase, like a nasal spray steroid, um, following that nasal wash once or twice a day. Um, Something else you probably should ask about is an incentive spirometer. You may have gotten this in the hospital, but basically it's a little handheld plastic device that you blow in. And blowing out Mm. and blowing in, you know, when you're in a hospital with pneumonia, a lot of times they'll give you that. If you've got that, yeah, and it's pretty easy to do that at home, and that does help. That's actually pretty hard work doing it, Um, but uh, and people don't like it. People don't like to do it, but um, but I do it. Good, 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 good. Yeah, so get better. Yeah, that may help too. Um, But yeah, I just ask them about those alternatives to see head to head which ones you know got the got the better outcome. Well, thank you. You've been very kind and helpful. Thank you, Terry. We do uh, wish you the best in that uh, with that condition. And not a common thing, but it certainly has, uh, if you do have it, it, it certainly has a lot of negative side effects that are uh, negative things you have to deal with with it. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls. Got some great ones so far. Plenty of time for you to call in with your question about any kind of healthcare topic about yourself or somebody else that you uh, have a question about. We'll take all of those. Uh, maybe it's a new medication that you're taking. You don't quite know why they prescribed it for you. Maybe it's a question about a side effect. Maybe it's something over the counter that you want to know if it'd be beneficial to you. We will take all those calls and more. I always catch myself when I say dial because nobody dials anymore. You push the buttons, I guess, or even use Siri if you want to to do that. 
Uh, I did see an old movie, though, uh, the other night, night before last. I saw uh, Three Days of the Condor with uh, Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway and a great old movie. But um, I sort of laughed because I thought about what I say on the air with dialing because he went to a phone booth and a couple other phone calls along the way and was doing the old dialing. I sort of laughed to myself about that. But we'll take those calls right now. Uh, You can email us um, if it's more convenient. Some of our listeners we know can't email. Maybe they listen to the program later on your favorite podcasting app. You can do that. Just search for Southern Remedy. Or uh, you can go to our website and look for our archive programs. But do have an email question uh, from someone that says they are 69-year-old uh, man, and about nine years ago, they suffered a torn rotator cuff on their right sur- uh, shoulder, never got surgery. They lost strength in their arm when they pick anything up over five pounds uh, and uh, occasionally have pain from their uh, right ear region down to their right hand. The pain goes away after about a week. Uh, they're willing to live with it, but what are they want to know what our thoughts are on that. So uh, rotator cuff problems are usually from overuse of the arm. So usually it's like if you... If you're not used to doing something and you have repetitive movements uh, that involve the shoulder, which is a marvelous joint and it is made for an incredible range of motion, um, but it's not really the best joint in certain uh, positions, particularly for uh, supporting heavy weights. Um, so I actually, as an example, I had a left partial rotator cuff tear uh, in my left shoulder when I was younger and I was uh, catching 50 pound bags of fertilizer where I was working on a golf course and they would toss them off the truck and then I would sort of extend my left arm out and grab the bag. So yeah, I can't do that anymore. If you throw a 50 pound bag, bag of fertilizer at me now, I'm going down. But, uh, but I could then. But I had uh, problems with that rotator cuff for a month after that. The, the rotator cuff itself, it's not the muscles you see. It's not like the deltoid or the pectoralis or the trapezius that you see around the shoulder area. Um, they are very small muscles that basically keep the head of the humerus, that's your upper arm bone, in uh, the right position as it moves with the glenoid um, fossa, which is that's basically the glenoid is the part of the shoulder blade that articulates that moves in contact with the, the upper arm bone, the humerus. And it needs to be it doesn't need to be out of place in any kind of way. So if you again, if you uh, injure it, you can have a lot of problems with it. You can also have injuries to the um, to the all these supporting structures around there. But the rotator cuff are four muscles. It's made up of four muscles that help to stabilize the shoulder joint as it moves around. And chronic, you know, there's the acute phase, which you may or may not need imaging, usually a good exam by somebody who knows what they're, they're doing and is very experienced in diagnosis. They can, uh, they can, you know, help you out with that. Physical therapy works wonders unless you have a complete tear. Even with partial tears, they can help to strengthen that over time and then some over-the-counter medications. But if we're nine years out, now we're talking about other things. We're talking about probably a weakness in that, that cuff that hasn't really recovered Physical therapy may still help and may be something that you want to try for that. Um, you probably want to see a sports medicine specialist or an orthopedic surgeon. They may want to do some injections or do some an MRI of the shoulder, which should show those soft tissues and sort of what's going on. Um, 
But if it's a complete tear, surgical intervention may be the thing that you have to do. But nine years is a long time. And um, if I were you, I, if it's not a, a complete tear, and it, sometimes even if it is, physical therapy may still be appropriate to strengthen those other muscles and stabilize the shoulder joint, decrease your pain, and give you greater range of motion. Uh, when we don't move our shoulders after an injury like that, you can get what's called a frozen shoulder, which is basically scar tissue forms, and it fixes that shoulder in one particular uh, orientation. And that is incredibly difficult to treat long term. So it's much harder to do that. So the key is, if you're not like our patient who emailed and this just happened to you, after about two weeks, if it's still hurting, go see somebody, but don't let it go months to years. That's that's going to be much harder. But even then, go see somebody because a lot of stuff can be done. A lot of it doesn't have to be surgical. A lot of it can be other ways to uh, increase your mobility and decrease your pain. So thank you for emailing. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to Richard in Tupelo. Good morning, Richard. Morning. What's your question this morning? So uh, here recently I was diagnosed with dysautonomia and small fiber neuropathy from a neurologist. And for about five years now I've been slowly kind of losing control of my legs. Uh, They kind of shake uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if maybe small fiber neuropathy could do that or if there's something else going on. It could be both. Yeah. So small fiber neuropathy uh, can affect any part of the body. And it's usually arms and legs is what most people, you know, present with. It can be in a localized area or it can be, you know, more uh, dispersed throughout the body. And there's multiple causes of that. You know, that's one diagnosis that has a lot of causes. And sometimes those are acquired um, conditions in the the muscle or uh, in where the nerve attaches to the muscle, uh, we call that the end plate, or it may be in the uh, either the muscle or the uh, nerve itself. It's interesting, like nerves and muscles. If they're the one, the nerves that con- that control muscular movement, um, they have to be connected. If you don't connect that that uh, nerve to the muscle and that's that connection severed for any reason if there's a problem with the muscle it can also affect the nerves if there's a a problem with the nerves it can affect the muscle so there's lots of different causes for that i would i would suggest a super specialized neurologist that is a movement disorder neurologist and if you haven't had a biopsy if you're if you're losing the ability to really move your legs and losing strength in them if they haven't done a biopsy already, which probably that's how you got the small small uh, fiber neuropathy diagnosis, I'm guessing. That would be one thing. Sometimes genetic studies can help sort of pinpoint, but it is extremely hard to treat without knowing exactly what you're dealing with. And this would be one of those things that I tell my patients, hey, if we think we're going down this pathway – um, I would say even if you have to go to somebody who's super specialized out of state that really knows what they're doing, like Mayo Clinic um, is one of the, one of the examples of somebody uh, that, that they have the expertise to really do a, a thorough evaluation. It's worth it because I've seen some some patients get misdiagnosed and it's it's very frustrating for them. Uh, and for for me as a primary care provider, so just I, that would be my get all the information you can at this point, and if that means getting a second opinion, even if it's out of state, I think I'd invest in that. Okay, I appreciate that. 
All right. Thank you, Richard, and uh, good luck to you. We do appreciate you calling. I'm going to go to Mike in Memphis. Good morning, Mike. What's your question this morning? Hey, good morning, Doctor. The question I had earlier, I know you talked about hemorrhoid, and similar question I have for that, you know, about four months ago, three or four months ago, I started seeing, you know, when I wipe down my stool, you see blood substance in it, and some type of, like, liquidy, maybe, I don't know, like, a liquidy substance is well. And when I want to, like, release gas or something like that, you know, I know I can feel something, you know, like stool coming off or something. So who should I go see to, you know, solve this issue? Yeah. With those symptoms, I would suggest a gastroenterologist or a GI specialist. The same same thing. Um, okay. that, that would be the expert to uh, – because a couple of things could be happening. This could be something like hemorrhoids like we, we discussed earlier. Um, and, you know, sometimes we'll ask the questions, is the blood on the outside of the stool or when you wipe? Um, that may be more likely to, to be indicating that it's hemorrhoids, but you really just don't know. And we would hate to miss something that, you know, is a, a polyp or like a precancerous polyp in the colon uh, or, it, you know, even more serious than that, something that's cancer. So. The GI specialist is really the right person to go to. The other thing is, you know, you mentioned some things with the consistency of the of the stools and a little bit of loss of uh, of uh, continence when you you know when you uh, pass gas or you you know bear down. Those can be indications of other things happening. Um, so I think, but I think that the GI specialist is going to be the right person that is probably going to prep you for a, a colonoscopy. Uh, and okay. after they do a thorough history and exam, they may want to do the colonoscopy because that gives them a direct visualization of the entire colon uh, so that if there are other things where they can see where this is coming from. The other thing that you know is, is on the list of the things that they'll be looking for, sometimes you can have autoimmune processes or colitis uh, that can produce sort of that, that watery or, or mucusy uh, bloody, yeah. yeah. So that's a possibility too, and all of these are, are treatable things. Um, so, but the earlier you get that diagnosis, the more you know exactly what you're dealing with. So, I would get somebody to to get you in touch with that gastroenterologist or the GI specialist. GI specialist, okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your support. All right, Mike. Thank you for calling. I actually got another. Um, Email question. Here we go. Just got it pulled up. Uh, this uh, person said they had uh, blood transfusions in the last couple of months due to an upper GI bleed. Um, the amount was six units. And this transfusion uh, was done after they had received a flu vaccination about one month after that. But before they received their COVID vaccine, they wanted to know, am I still protected or should I get the flu vaccination again? So great question, and man, a lot of good thought process in this. So a blood transfusion, typically something like this where you have loss of blood from a GI bleed or something else that you would require that. Six units is a lot. That's a lot of uh, bleeding that they had. Uh, and uh, but during the hospitalization, apparently they got that. So one thing, if you're getting blood like that, we you know, long time ago, we just used to give whole blood. And blood has a lot of different things in it. Even though it looks red, when you let it sit for a long period of time, or if you take somebody's blood and you spin it down in a centrifuge, 
um, what you're going to find is it layers out in different layers. And each one of those layers has different components of blood. So uh, simply speaking, the the red cells are that red component, and they help carry oxygen. Okay, so they are carrying oxygen to tissues, and then they come back to the lungs and pick up, uh, you know, pick up more oxygen as they get circulated. And that's pretty much their main their main function. You have uh, platelets, which you don't have a whole lot of platelets, but these are sort of cells that uh, produce these substances that help you uh, clot something that's bleeding. So if you have, you know, a an area where you're bleeding anywhere in the body, platelets sort of move in and they plug that hole. And then you have um, white blood cells, and white blood cells are made up of different types. Uh, there are um, neutrophils, which fight off things like bacteria. There are lymphocytes, which fight off things like uh, like viruses. Uh, and then you have lots of other white blood cell types, too. Um, so those are the three main things in there. And then you have the plasma, which is has all kinds of substances like the clotting pathway, and they have antibodies that are, that are circulating. So it, it is a ton of stuff in your blood. It's not just the stuff carrying oxygen. So when they give you, again, years ago, decades ago, when they first started doing blood transfusions, it was just whole blood. So they give you all of that. Well, what they found out was the red blood cells, of course, were beneficial in somebody who's losing that. The, the, if you lose a lot of blood, usually the thing that impacts you the most right off the bat is that you can't get oxygen to your tissues. So you're not able to oxygenate tissues and you start to have a fast heart rate. It can, uh, it can damage different organs in your body, whether it's your kidneys, your brain, of course, being the, the, uh, and your heart are the big ones, but it can, it can really affect all parts of your body. So um, in an effort to sort of specifically give you what you need, now we just give those red blood cells. So they spin whole blood down. They separate off the components. Because if you give whole blood and you get somebody else's white blood cells, their white blood cells are going to think that things in your body are foreign to them, right? So they're going to start fighting that off. So some people will have blood transfusion reactions. We also match up the different types of blood, right? So if you have o, o negative, for instance, or O positive, or A or B, or combinations of those, that would be sort of matched up based on what you need um, and, and what, what they have in the blood bank. So if we're talking about vaccinations, vaccinations use the body's own immune system and they present it with something, an antigen to say, hey, I want you to recognize this when you see it again. So in the case of the flu vaccine, it is an antigen. It's not the actual live flu, but it's an antigen that looks like the outside coat of the flu. And your white blood cells, they take that, they take it to their uh, immune factories like lymph nodes, and they start to make antibodies against that. And they have cells that hang around for longer peri- long periods of time, months to years, that say, I'm going to remember this. Okay, so those are the memory cells that do that. Those are all white blood cells. So that's the whole white blood cell pathway. Since you got, since our listener got um, red blood cells because of the GI bleed, they didn't really get any white blood cells and they retained their own white blood cells. So it really wouldn't interfere with getting immunized a month prior to that. 
Uh, you've got enough exposure, usually two to four weeks after a vaccine, to develop antibodies and develop those memory cells that would protect you during that time. Um, now, if you got something else, you know, there may be some situations if you have leukemia, if you got uh, treatment for that, if you got treatment for any cancer with that might impair how your immune system works, then it might be beneficial to get immunized before that if you could. And then also after that, there may be a period of time that you want your immune system to recover. But in this particular instance of getting red blood cells, it's really not going to affect the functionality of an immunization like this. So I would not recommend re-getting, retaking your flu vaccine in that situation. But great, uh, great call. Uh, and I hope I didn't over-explain that. I'm, I've been guilty of that more than once. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning on a rainy morning, rainy Wednesday. I hope everybody's staying dry out there. And uh, if you do get out and have to commute back and forth somewhere, please, again, be careful. Um, don't try to go in places where you can't see the bottom of that puddle. And I know that's difficult sometimes. I'm like, I was more worried about potholes about not seeing those this morning and driving a little bit slower. But uh, certainly, uh, again, saw some cars that were not so fortunate with going through some things. I get this question a lot. Everybody you know, asks me, as a physician and a person, which we are the same thing, all physicians are persons, believe it or not, we don't act like it sometimes. Um, they want to know, you know, hey, you doctors and nurses, what's the secret sauce to keep healthy, what are you doing, and um, to stay healthy? And you know, I'm pretty. I guess my answer is pretty boring because it sort of goes back to those same things. A lot of people say, "Do you take any supplements?" And I know a lot of physicians that do. Um, I think most people who who listen to us uh, regularly, you know, sort of know my take on that. Is uh, if you've got a deficiency of something, and that, um, and a supplement is sort of meeting that whether that's a vitamin or something else, I think that's fine. That may actually be the proper way to do it. But as far as supplements that have, you know, little pieces of this, little pieces of that, I go and look at the at the medical literature to see if it's been studied. And a lot of that has. Um, I try to see, does it have negative side effects either in, in, you know, how often you take it or if it has any interactions with things. And then if it's if it's okay, you know, other than that, and it's not really, even if it doesn't have a lot of scientific evidence with improving your health, I'll say, look, if you want to, if you want to do it, that's fine. If you feel better, good for you. But me personally, I just try to stay as active as I can in things that I like. I try to eat healthy. I don't always succeed. I love sweets, and I have a problem with that. Um, but I just try to eat things that are mostly vegetable and fruit base, lower in sodium, and uh, try to do that. And I think, you know, if you do that in moderation and try to make those those good choices and do things regularly, you know, I certainly holidays and stuff come up, skipping, you know, what I normally do, that's, that's understandable. But trying to set up a lifestyle like that to me makes a whole lot of sense. And it's not one of these things that's really difficult. If, you're, if you choose a diet that's difficult, you're probably not going to stick with it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. We'll be right back.